If you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to open this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9 is where we will be this morning. And um, we continue in this series entitled Saved. We've been here for the past few weeks and uh, we've, we've gone through three different sermons in this series Saved. The purpose of this series is to further explain, to be real clear about what God means about salvation. What does God mean when he says that those who believe in him can be saved? That's what we want to come to. We want you to understand that. We, we don't want that to be unclear. We don't want to assume just because we live in the South where there are lots of churches uh, virtually... Uh, you don't want to say every corner because we're not, we don't exactly have corners where we live. We have curves where we live, but there are churches everywhere. But we don't want to assume that everyone understands all of the gospel. So this morning, we will continue. We've been through the fact that when God saves someone, he makes them alive. He regenerates them. Then when he regenerates them, they turn from their sin and turn to Christ in faith and are converted And upon conversion, God then responds to their faith with justification. He declares them right, not guilty. He declares them righteous by imputing the righteousness of Christ to those who believe in Him. Today we come to another issue, another response of God to that faith, and it is adoption. It's one of those things that's gaining um, credibility or popularity in our culture today. Um, When I say that, I'm speaking of um, parents adopting children, couples adopting children. Um, The similarities there are uh, to what God does in adoption are uncanny, and I want you to see those today. Um, Let's pray together, and then we'll look at this. Lord, this morning, God, I pray that in these next few minutes... God, that you would make your word extremely clear. God, that you would speak through me on this issue of adoption. God, that you would call some who are here today to yourself. That they would be born again, trust in you, be converted, be justified, and find themselves today in the family of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Russell Moore, who is the dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he was actually my professor in theology, and if you ever run into Russell Moore, don't mention my name. When I was there, I wasn't exactly all in to his class, and uh, I I passed that class really by his grace and, and God's grace too, but I think the world of Russell Moore. Russell Moore is one of the young up-and-coming leaders in our convention. He is the right-hand man to Al Mohler, uh, who is the president of that seminary. But Russell and his wife Maria adopted two boys from Russia. And he thinks back on that. He reminisces about that experience in a book that I would commend to you called Adopted for Life. Adopted for Life by Russell Moore. It's one of those that you'll pick it up and you'll say, I don't exactly know why I'm reading this. This is about the adoption of children, and I'm not sure how it applies to me, but you'll see how when God's people get his heart for adopting his people, 
then it transfers into the, the people of God adopting needy, needy children around the world. So, but he's, he's reminiscing over this experience. Let me just read you this kind of lengthy uh, section in his book. He says, For a couple of seconds, my mind flashed back to the first time I ever saw these two boys. They were lying in excrement and vomit, covered in heat blisters and flies, in an orphanage somewhere in a little mining community in Russia. Maria and I had applied to adopt and had gone on the first of two trips, not knowing who, if anyone, we would find waiting for us. Immediately upon landing in the former Soviet Union, I wondered if we had made the worst mistake of our lives. Sitting in a foreign airport with the smell of European perfume, human sweat and cigarette smoke wafting all around us, Maria and I recommitted to God that we would trust him and that we would adopt whomever he directed us to, regardless of what medical or emotional problems they may have. A Russian judge told us she had two gray-eyed boys picked out for us, both of whom had been abandoned by their mothers to a hospital in a little village about an hour from where we were staying. Sure enough, the orphanage authorities, through our translators, cataloged a terrifying list of medical problems, including fetal alcohol syndrome for one, if not both, of the boys. We looked at each other as, as if to say, this is what the Lord has for us, so here we go. The nurse led us up some stairs, down a dank hallway, and into a tiny room with two beds. I can still see the younger of the two, now Timothy, rocking up and down against the bars of his crib, grinning widely. The older, now Benjamin, was more reserved, stroking my five o'clock shadow with his hand and seeing, I came to realize, a man most probably for the first time in his life. Both the boys had hair matted down on their heads, and one of them had crossed eyes. Both of them moved slowly and rigidly, almost like stop-motion clay-animated characters from the Christmas television specials of our 1970s childhoods. And we loved them both at an intuitive and almost primal level from the very first second. Just kind of a quick snippet from the book, but the picture that we see in Russell Moore and his wife Maria adopting these two boys, Timothy and Benjamin, is not much different than the picture that we see in our text today. It's not much different than we find the position that we find ourselves in. You see, Benjamin and Timothy had nothing in and of themselves to offer Russell and Maria. They had nothing that they could give to them that would make them want to take them home. As a matter of fact, as you read through that, as I read through that for the first time, I won't mind telling you that I found myself thinking, I don't know that I could have gone through with it. I don't know that once I would have saw the sights and smelled the smells and thought about all of the challenges to come, I don't know that I could have gone through with it. But God led Russell and Maria to go through with it. The picture is not all that much different of what God has done for us. Let's look at our text this morning in Second Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. We see David here adopting a child of his own. And David said, is there, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? 
Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to him, said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, but he is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amael, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. I want to show you this morning this great picture of adoption. We, we find other places in Scripture, Romans 8, for instance, Galatians 4, for instance, Ephesians 1, where adoption is explained, where adoption is, we, we see what it is, we see the benefits of it. But here we come to this particular historical event and we see a picture of it. It's one thing for me to throw the facts of adoption at you. It's another thing for you to see it. And understand and find yourself in the place of Mephibosheth. I want you to see this morning that adoption is totally a work of God's kindness. It's totally a work of God's kindness. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. You don't have to turn there. Just let me read these quickly. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That is the place we find ourselves in without Christ. Unless we are saved... We find ourselves there as sons of disobedience, sons of anarchy, sons of our father, the devil. We find ourselves as children of wrath, waiting nothing but the eternal punishment of a just God. But 
If you go back to the Gospel of John and you look at chapter 1, verse 12, don't, don't turn, just listen. Let these words wash over you. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, that's good. See, that's what's at stake here in adoption. It's more than just us being declared right so that one day when we stand before God, we will have nothing to fear. But beyond that, he has gone, gone well beyond that and brought us into his own family. He truly is our father. And just as Russell and Maria came to that orphanage in Russia and saw these little boys with hair matted down, laying in excrement and vomit and flies and heat blisters and cross-eyed, there was nothing in them that would cause them to want to take these two boys home. But in their grace, those boys today call Russell daddy and Maria mama. In the same way, we can do the same with our Heavenly Father. I want to show you this in Mephibosheth, how this is totally an act or a work of God's kindness. Complete kindness on his part. Let's just walk through this passage together. In verse 1, it says, Is there not someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to? This is what David is saying. Bring me someone of the house of Saul. You have to understand a little bit of the background here. Saul was the king. He was killed. David is the man that God chose to be the next king. David has become the king, but Saul has, has been killed, and so has his son Jonathan. There's nobody left of the, the household of Saul except one man. His name is Mephibosheth. And you have to also understand that when David asks, is there anyone left of the house of Saul, he is asking for a descendant of his greatest enemy. Saul was the man who tried to kill David on more than one occasion. Saul was the man who would become tormented in his spirit and call for David to come and play his harp and it would soothe him. But then in the middle of that, Saul would have a fit of rage and throw a spear at David trying to pin him to the wall. Saul is the man who tried to kill David on numerous times. He sent his army after David. David fled and hid in caves and all over the place. There was a couple of times where David could have taken the life of Saul, but he didn't. Nevertheless, Saul was David's arch enemy. So when David here says, is there not someone still from the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? This is David loving his enemy. Then it goes on and it says, for Jonathan's sake, can I not find someone of the house of Saul to show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? David here is remembering the covenant or the promise that he had made to Jonathan and to Saul. That he would not destroy their descendants. That once he took power and began to reign, that he would not wipe out the descendants of Saul and Jonathan. But Jonathan was gone, and so was Saul. Not killed by David, but killed by Philistines. And David was left. And David here says, Is there not someone for Jonathan's sake that I can show kindness to? 
I want you to see that this is totally the kindness of God. Not only is David here loving his enemy, but he is sticking true to his word. Then you go further. You go on down a little further into uh, the, the text, into verse 3. And it begins to describe Mephibosheth. And, and Ziba, the servant, says there is one, but he's crippled in his feet. If David were going to take Mephibosheth into his household, showing kindness to the family of Saul for the sake of Jonathan, he would get nothing in return. Mephibosheth would not be a worker in the household. He would not bring anything to the kingdom. In fact, he would bring burden. David would have to provide for him and look after him. This is totally the work of the kindness of God. Mephibosheth became crippled when news came back that Saul and Jonathan and the army had been wiped out. And the nurse that was looking after five-year-old Mephibosheth grabbed him up to run out and she dropped him along the way and five-year-old Mephibosheth became crippled in his feet. So he could bring nothing to the kingdom of David. This would be totally grace, unearned kindness. And then you go on and down in verse 4 and 5 and it says, where is he? You come to this word that he's in Lodabar. Lodabar. Lodabar means it's kind of hard to translate. It's kind of hard to know exactly where it is. It either means literally no pasture or no word. In essence, what, what this is saying is that this soul surviving relative of Saul is in a place that nobody wants to get to. He's in a barren land. He is not looking for David. If David is going to bring him into his house, David will have to go to him. And this is a wonderful picture of you and I. That when you and I were lost in our sin, we were also enemies of God. We had rebelled against God. We had said as the writer in Romans says, there is no God. We had chosen to do things our own way and launched a rebellion against the kingdom. We were enemies of God. God had made a promise though. God had made, He had launched this plan before the foundations of the world that He would redeem a people to Himself. And this whole thing is tied up in the character of God. Would he be true to his word? We, like Mephibosheth, are crippled. We are broken. We bring nothing to the kingdom of God in and of ourselves. If God were to bring us into his family, what would we bring to it? Other than burden for God. We, like Mephibosheth... We're in a distant place, separated from God. If we were going to be brought into the family of God, God would have to come to us. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did in leaving heaven and coming to our Lodabar. When God adopts us into his family, it is still totally an act of kindness. John MacArthur puts it this way in his book, Slave. And that's another book. I'm trying to recommend to you books through this series, but this, this book, Slave, by John MacArthur, I would commend to you. He says in it, he says, What a magnificent picture of our spiritual adoption by God. 
We were not seeking him, yet he found us and saved us. We were his enemies, and yet he made us his friends. We could offer him nothing in return, yet he bestowed on us an inheritance we did not deserve. All of this is ours by grace through faith in his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. We have been adopted into the family of God totally as an act of kindness from our God. It is grace and grace alone. We who were enemies, far off, crippled, bringing nothing to his family, hear him now say in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 17 and 18, I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. It's totally a work of God's kindness. Secondly, I want you to see this morning, though, that adoption is, goes beyond just an act of kindness. It goes to a place that we desperately need. Adoption removes all fear. Adoption removes all fear. If you look at verses 6 and 7 in our text today, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. I want you to notice the exclamation mark at the end of Mephibosheth. By the way, say that three times fast, right? I want you to notice, though, the exclamation mark that's there. Mephibosheth has been living out his days in Lodabar. He's had a relative looking after him, taking care of him. It's not been a glorious life, but it's been some sort of existence. He has been safe from the new king. And all of a sudden, word comes. Mephibosheth. The king wants to see you. What do you think is going through Mephibosheth's mind? My grandfather wanted to kill David. Now David wants me to come and see him. And he goes and the Bible says that he gets there. We don't know how he got there. We know he's crippled in both of his feet. But it says that once he's there, he falls on his face. He pays homage to David. He is... I can just picture him on the ground and he says, I'm your servant. And I think his, his eyes were probably scrunched together. His teeth were clenched together. He was just waiting for the sword to fall or the spear to run him through. He just knew that it was coming. Particularly when David says, Mephibosheth. I think his teeth got tighter and he just waited for it to come. But then he hears these words. David says, do not fear. Do not fear. And I can also picture Mephibosheth on the ground in the dust thinking, this is it, it's coming to an end. And he hears David say, do not fear. And I think, it, just picture him opening one eye, the other, unclenching his teeth, and then slowly sort of turning to look up to see David. And to his amazement, when he looks up and his eyes meet David's, David is smiling. This is not a man filled with rage. David is smiling. And David just doesn't look at him and smile as if, you poor pitiful thing, I can never do what you think I was going to do. Instead, then he reaches down his hand and he takes Mephibosheth by the hand and he helps him up to those crippled feet. You see, adoption, God bringing us into his family, removes all fear. 
God says to us, don't be afraid. Romans 8 begins with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's what we talked about last week in justification, that you and I don't have to fear. There is no fear in life. There's no fear in death because for those who are in Christ, we will stand before God one day and we will stand not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of His Son. Perfect righteousness, having our sins carried away and having His righteousness placed on us. There is no fear. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You go to the middle of Romans 8 and you come to verses 12, or, or I'm sorry, verses, um, fi- verse 15. Verse 15 of Romans 8, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. Adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The word Abba there, you've probably heard it in other sermons, is a word that is really, it really means it's the equivalent of daddy. It's the equivalent of papa. And I struggle with this because I I don't think, I think in my flesh, I don't feel like I should be able to look at the God of the universe who spoke and creation flung itself into place. The universe holds together because of His Word. I don't think that I should be able to look at Him and say, Daddy! It seems way too casual. My human father is here this morning. I can look at my human father and say, Dad or Daddy. But it seems way too casual for me to call the God of the universe, Daddy. Romans 8 tells us, and the picture of Mephibosheth shows us, we didn't receive... Spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But instead, we have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters of that God. And the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we cry out, Daddy! That's the intimate relationship that we have with our Father, who is God. Romans 8 ends... Paul wants us to get this. God wants us to see this. In Romans 8, verses 31, all the way through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for all of us, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, 
nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Adoption being brought into the family of God with God as our true Father casts out all fear. It's what John writes about in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, when he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And who among us who know the Lord Jesus as our Savior and thus have been adopted into God's family could say that, that God has loved us in any way other than perfectly? Just as Mephibosheth laid on that ground, trembling, clenching himself, ready for whatever was to come, and David says, don't be afraid. God also, this is the picture of adoption. God also says, don't be afraid. You can come to me. Adoption is a work of God's kindness. It removes all fear. And then... Thirdly, adoption makes us all heirs. Those of us who are in Christ, we are adopted into the family of God, and with adoption comes an inheritance. In verse 7, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, it says, David says, Don't be afraid, for I will restore to you all the land of Saul. Mephibosheth had no legal right to this. David was the king. David could do whatever he wanted to do. Mephibosheth was just out of luck. David looks at this poor, crippled relative of his arch enemy from a distant place and says, I'm giving you back everything that belonged to your dad. I'm giving you everything back that belonged to your grandfather. We have been made heirs with Christ also. Romans 8 verses 16 through 17 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. As I studied this week, I I wanted to bring to you a list of all the things that we were going to inherit. I wanted to be like the person who reads the will. To Charles Madden, I leave. But you know what? There's more to list. I mean, there's, there's more than I could have ever listed. I think it probably could be summed up in, in about three areas. Number one, as heirs of God, God is our inheritance. It's what the psalmist says in 16.5. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. God is the gospel. Do you understand that? What else could we want beyond God? Secondly, When we are heirs of God in Christ Jesus, here's one that will not be popular. This is one that will not bring them into the conference room to hear the reading of the will. We are also heirs of Christ, which means we are heirs of His suffering. That's what it said there. Provided we suffer with Him. 
Jesus told us that. He warned us that if you're going to come after me, as much as they hated me, they will hate you all the more. And there are so many people that want to come to the Lord. They want to come to Christianity. They want to come to the church as long as it makes me happy, wealthy, and wise, and it doesn't cost me anything. I'll do whatever you want me to do. That's the gospel that I want. But the reality is, that's not the whole inheritance. That's why Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, his church. What Paul is saying there is that he is proud to suffer. This is a man who knew suffering. He knew it all too well. They had tried to kill him on numerous occasions. He had been imprisoned. He had had rocks thrown at him. Uh, to stone him. He had been shipwrecked. He had spent a day and a night in the sea. He had had all these things happen to him for following Christ. And he says, I'm so glad that I can write to you that I get to suffer like this because I'm filling up in my afflictions what was lacking in Christ. Now, is he saying that the sufferings of Christ weren't quite enough? No. What he is saying is, that the world hates God to the point that they didn't get it all out on Christ. They have so, this, is, this is the depravity of man. They have so much hatred for God and His gospel that we have the opportunity, those of us who are in Christ, to also fill up the afflictions of Christ. Third, it, Our inheritance is God. It is also of the sufferings of Christ. But here's the one that everyone longs for, wants to see, and we should for good reason. There is glory that is coming to us. Glory that is not deserved in and of ourselves. It is not earned of our own merit. But one of these days, these bodies that you and I have will be so transformed that they will last forever. Not only will they last forever, but they will last in the presence of God Almighty. That we will live forever in the city that needs no sun, moon, or stars. That Jesus Christ will be the light of that city. We will worship around His throne throughout eternity, joining in with saints throughout all the ages. Finally, being in the place that those angels have always been. And we get to join our voices with theirs. Hopefully we sing louder than they will. And we overpower them. Holy, holy, holy. I would love to be there and an angel say, well, I thought I was pretty good, you know, until he came along. He'd show off. Because see, it's not about showing off. It is about being there where there is nothing more valuable. There is glory that is coming to us that makes what we go through here pale in comparison. That's our inheritance. We don't deserve any of it though. But by the grace of God, Whatever comes our way is perfect. 
Whatever comes our way is perfect. Let me just, let me just make a statement, and I'm going to run on, and you'll think about it all afternoon. You'll come back and ask me questions about it, okay? If God is sovereign, if God is sovereign, then whatever comes into your life is perfect. Fourth, adoption makes us sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. The beautiful imagery here in the story of Mephibosheth is David saying to Ziba, Ziba, you're going to work this ground, all of, your, all of your children, all of this, because Mephibosheth no longer will he eat away from my table. He will be at my table from now on. Are you kidding me? The table of the king? Catherine Hesser, in her book, Jewish Slavery and Antiquity, and that one I probably wouldn't recommend to you because you'd probably fall asleep reading it. She writes, An adopted slave was always considered a real member of the family. And his name was registered as such, not only in the family register, but with the other members of the family, in the archives of the city. And the book in which it was so registered was called, in Jerusalem, Book of Life, or the Book of the Living. So, the names of all the Lord's adopted ones are registered in the Book of Life, of the heavenly Jerusalem. And the beauty of this is it is also the king's family, not a beggar's, into which he is registered. And he is as welcome at the table as the king himself. That is our position in the family of God. Jesus is to be preeminent, but we have been brought near. And then also in verse 11 of our passage today, it says that Mephibosheth will be just like one of the sons. As I read over it several times, I passed by it, and then all of a sudden, God hit me with it. Like one of the sons. That when you and I gather together under this title of Christian or under this title of member of Abner Creek Baptist Church, we gather together not Existing separately. We are not to exist in our own way with our own lives that never cross one another. We will have our own lives. But we are family. Those of us who are here today who are in Christ, that's why we look at one another and call each other brother. Sister. Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. I've been there a lot today, but this is what it says. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God 
and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. My question to you this morning is, do you find yourself in the position of Mephibosheth? There's not a one of us here that can find ourselves in the position of David. But have you found yourself in the position of Mephibosheth, enemy of God, totally dependent on the character and the grace of God, bringing nothing to the table, nothing to the family, nothing to the kingdom, separated from God because of your sin? Have you found yourself there at the total mercy of the one who has every right to let the sword drop on you? but instead found him to be the one who is smiling. Based on what his son did at Calvary, saying, don't fear. Come to my table. You will forevermore eat at my table. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we have, we have nothing to boast in other than you. Even after we've been brought to the family, God, we are still in this process of being conformed to the image of your Son. While we are fully Children adopted into the family of God, those of us who have come to Christ, who have received by faith the gift of the gospel, we are still in many ways broken. We are heading toward glory, but God, we're not there yet. God, I pray that in this time of response, God, I pray that that would be the thought that is pressing In the minds of the believers that are here, we are children of God. God, that we would leave this place today submitted to the authority of our Father. And God, for those in the room that have never found themselves in the position of Mephibosheth, God, I pray today that you would show them exactly who they are. You would call them to yourself, God. There would be great repentance in this room, great faith in this room, not great because it is mustered out of the will, but great because it is a gift from you. And God, that today, that we would be able to celebrate today with brand new brothers and sisters in the family of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.